What is that? Ice. It's going to break. Spring has officially sprung in Sicily. The ice is melting. Yeah, it looks like we're out of the winter season. Looks like we're heading into spring. Yeah, we're only halfway through, right? Uh, Just about a little more than halfway through the second season. And uh, this is sort of the spring order of episodes. And, you know, we're we're already leaving. Maybe, do you think there'll be snow next episode or what's going to happen? Uh, that's a good question. Probably not because the ice is melting by the end. Like it cracks. True. Well, I got, I wonder when they uh, shot this episode because remember in the first season, they shot that all like over summer and this would have been, well, just says the air date. I don't, I don't have anything on the, when they were shooting this. And again, we don't have, we don't have like deleted scenes for this season on the DVDs. Sometimes those would show like the slate and you could see the date on it. Oh, Hmm. when is the air date? The air date would be May 6th, 1991. Okay, can we just pretend that's the uh, date? (laughs) Well, they might have been shooting it in the winter because, you know, it is snowing. That's true. As opposed to whenever they they were shooting in the summer. So that's my guess. My guess is maybe... Go ahead. (laughs) What what are we talking about? What are we talking about We're talking about about Northern Exposure, Season 2, Episode 5, Spring Break. We we mentioned that the ice was melting. It's spring. Uh, and this is, of course, the Northern Overexposure Podcast. Thank you for reining me in there, Charles. It's going to try to go as, as long as I could without, without mentioning it. I, lo- I like to sneak it in. Um, I think they know what podcast they're listening to. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if anyone accidentally, how would you accidentally download this? I don't know. Anyway, uh, my name is Lee. I am a big fan of the show. And of course, Charles is here. Yeah, this is my first time watching a show. I've never seen it before, at least seen it plenty of times, and we like to overanalyze the 1990s CBS television series, Northern Exposure. Yeah, and uh, typically on this show, one of our mission statements is to introduce the show to someone who has never seen it. You know, the show was very popular at the time when it was airing, but um, no one really talks about it anymore. But as I said, normally we would, uh, we would have a guest on the show who has never seen the show, uh, but today we have a special guest host in the studio with us, quote unquote studio. This is Jay. Jay, are you there? Hi guys, I'm here. It's good to be here. Yeah, you may remember Jay from episode eight. Uh, he and Charlotte did the guest commentary. And uh, if you're familiar with that episode, uh, you know that Jay has seen the show before. Jay, tell us a little bit about your love for Northern Exposure, your experience, the origin story. The origin story. Yeah. Well, I've seen, I've seen the show, I've seen the first three or four seasons Maybe two or three times. Right. Uh, and I think I've only seen the last two seasons a couple times. I was first introduced when I was in high school. Lee and I were in high school together. And um, my mom was the one that introduced the show. My mom is Charlotte. And uh, her brothers introduced her to her. They remember seeing the show in the early 90s when it was on the air on CBS. But I had never heard of it before. My mom may have heard of it before. I, I can't remember that part of it. Uh, but she got me to watch it with her. And uh, I love the show. Do you think... Your your bro your mom's brothers uh, gave her the DVD, or do you think she bought it herself? Or oh yeah, you know? she borrowed it. She borrowed she it borrowed. because I remember um, they came in like this this parka. The DVD yeah. had a parka case around it. Um, <laughs> one of them was orange. One of them was yellow. And I mean, obviously, the first two seasons are so short that they can fit into a single DVD case each. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to have multiple DVD cases. So they had a parka that wrapped around, and the uh, the zipper pull for the parka was uh, a little moose figurine. It was really cool. Nice. No way. Does she still have it? Um, 
my, one of my uncles might still have it. I'm not sure. I don't where I don't know where that is now. I do remember that, and you're right. It's it's only I guess for the first maybe the first two seasons, but uh, as we talked about before, the DVDs unfortunately are kind of lackluster after the first season. I haven't cracked open season three in a bit, so I don't remember if they have deleted scenes. Unfortunately, all of season two doesn't have deleted scenes on it. The DVDs, that is. Uh, what a shame. <laughs> well, maybe they did a perfect take. Maybe there was just absolutely no deleted scenes. <laughs> That's hard to believe. No. Yeah, probably. After one shooting, season. <laughs> shooting ratio one to one, like everything they shot, they were just one like, take Let's wonder. put it into the timeline and call it edited. It's done. <laughs> well, okay. I think we're, we're all here. We're gathered. Let's talk about spring break. Fifth episode. Of you the guys, season. yeah. You guys were talking about the timeline earlier. Yes. And um, mm-hmm. I wanted to note something. It Joel mentions in the episode, this episode, that he's been in Sicily for ten months. Right. Uh, so if the, if the show is supposed to be taking place at the same time as the original air dates, and it's May, like you said, ten months before that would be. July of the previous year, which is about the time when the first episodes aired from season one. Mm. Uh, so that kind of makes sense to me chronologically that Joel kind of arrived in Sicily in the summertime in yeah. July at the same time that the show first aired. And then the first season ended, which was like his first few months in Sicily. But then we pick up again um, within in the middle of winter. Yeah. Uh, like January when the show first started again or, or whenever the season, second season started. I don't know the air dates. And then we get to this episode like mid-season two and we're, we're in spring. Yeah, the second season began in April. So not, not necessarily winter, but, um, you know, we can kind of, we can skew the dates a little bit. Remember, they're much farther north than us, so their winters yeah. are going to last a lot longer. So That's true. Mm. The groundhog always sees his shadow. Up above there. a certain latitude. No, I guess there's probably. only one groundhog, I guess. There's only one groundhog. He's in Pennsylvania. That one, yeah. <laughs> Punxsutawney. Punxsutawney Phil, is that right, Charles? That's right. Yeah, that's his name. No, but that is a good thing to point out. Um, there, there's, no, there's not necessarily a reason why they need to keep um, true chronology like with the show and the shooting, but it makes sense in, in, the, in the sense that the actors, you know, you know if the show were to go on for 10 years they would try to keep it in real time so that the actors didn't look too young for the age or too old for the age. I guess that's one, that's one benefit of keeping, you know, exact chronology with show and reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that you actually make a good point, Jay. I think that judging by that timeline, it makes sense that it would be about May uh, because the series certainly did start around July. So I like that. Yeah, let's get into it. How does this show start? We get another... Dream sequence. Dream sequence time. How many dream sequences are we doing this season? I've lost track. It Um, seems like every episode there's one. I mean, ever since they kind of started doing that in season one, in in one or two of the episodes, that's kind of become their big thing is let's do dream sequences. I love it. Yeah. I like it too. So we get an opening shot of the Capuchin monkey, otherwise known as the organ grinder monkey. You guys know that? Organ grinder. I didn't know that. Um, What's that called? That's called a hurdy-gurdy. Wait, are you serious? he spins the little thing? Yeah, it's called a hurdy-gurdy, the little instrument. That's hilarious. I had no Mm -hmm. idea what's called that. Wait, what's the instrument? It's an instrument and a monkey? The monkey (laughs) is the capuchin monkey, and he he turns the crank on a hurdy-gurdy. Oh, okay. Now I'm picturing it. I get it now, yeah. Yeah, like one of those circus monkeys. And they they always wear like a bellhop costume of sorts, like out in the streets, like peddling money. (laughs) (laughs) I guess so, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But no, 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 no. Dream sequence. Um, This is sort of, uh, I remember... 
the Russian flu. This is the same writer as the Russian flu episode. Oh, is, is it? Probably one of your favorite episodes of the first season, Charles. Yeah, I didn't catch that. That, that was the same writers. David Asael. I guess I'm pronouncing it right. But he's returned. This is his second episode that he's written for Northern Exposure uh, so far. And yeah, it's this very lush green jungle and everything's like wet and drippy. I mean, it's obviously a set, but it's, it looks like real plants. It looks like real water and, and everything seems very rainforesty. So props to the greenery, like who, you know, the set dresser, whoever designed that set. It looks like a very convincing jungle and obviously something we've never seen before in Northern Exposure because, you know, they weren't shooting in any sort of tropical climate or near any sort of climate like that, even for spring. Yeah, definitely. We, we are not used to the color green in this television <laughs> series. That's true. That's true. Get a, get a lot of reds and blues, I think, mm -hmm. in, in well, the costuming and, and in the sets. Uh, uh, definitely want to make a note about that. Okay. That the, later on in this uh, podcast episode, the color right. red. But we'll yeah, get to that. There is, a, there is a lot of red. We can, we can talk about some color symbolism. Well, in fact, uh, there's red in this first scene. The apple that Maggie finds on the tree, she hands to Joel and, um, no, what does she do? She eats it and she says, oh, it's a Pippin. And Joel says, no, Pippins aren't red. That's a red apple. Clearly, Pippins are green. Um, however, when he takes a bite, he tastes Pippin. And then what happens after that? And then... Um who does it happen to first? I think Joel sees, no, no, Maggie sees Joel naked and then Joel sees Maggie naked. And Joel makes a remark like he, he usually he usually gets embarrassed being naked in public. He's very self-conscious, which that kind of becomes a recurring theme throughout the whole episode. Joel mentioned several times how self-conscious he is. Yeah. People are like kind of struggling with their sexuality, I guess, in this, their, their libido. Yeah, that's a big theme for this episode too. Oh, that's a good point. I, I didn't pick up on that, Jay. Because at the end of the episode, it relates back to nudity. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yes, it does. But I, I didn't the catch that. The running of though. the bulls. Oh, wow. Yeah, the running of the bulls. Mm-hmm. And wow, I mean, it's like a that perfect kind of, bookend. Yeah, that kind of um, that kind of shows some growth in Joel this episode. Yeah, he's kind of like uh, shedding off his skin, you know. Right. He's slowly Seasonal becoming changes, a, uh, doing some molting. For sure. Oh, there we go. That's the right word. But yeah, so this is sort of like a reverse Garden of Eden, I guess, because. What is it? In the, in the Bible, Adam and Eve are naked and they eat the apple and they can see that they're naked. That's true. That's true. Um, they, they realize, well, at first it is, you know, mm -hmm. Maggie eats the fruit and then she hands it to Joel who then eats it, which, is, which parallels the story from the Bible. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the Bible, Adam and Eve realize they're naked and want to be clothed, whereas in Northern Exposure, they realize they're naked and they don't <laughs> mind it. Yeah, they're into it. It they becomes... Normal. Wow. Um, but of course, the dream is consummated with a kiss and Maggie wakes up groaning. I'm pretty sure there's like the exact same shot in one of the earlier episodes this season where- it, That happens several Maggie, times. Yeah. Maggie wakes up from some kind of dream that she was dreaming about Joel. Yeah. And that's, that's become a recurring theme in, in the whole season so far. Uh, Maggie is dreaming about Joel. What do you think about that, Charles? What do you think they're setting up there? Uh, man, they've been setting it up the entire season, really. Maggie's, uh, you know, hidden lust for Joel and vice versa. Joel's obviously uh, wanting Maggie. My only thing that I'm really uncomfortable about this uh, plotline is that, and, and they talk about it later in the episode, is that Maggie is clearly with, still with Rick. Yeah. And what's mm -hmm. funny, what I'm also, you know, on top of uh, extramarital affairs, you know, Rick the actor is not being featured in this season very much either. Like, poor guy. 
He was brought on. We haven't on. seen him since season one. I'm pretty sure he's going to be in this season, right? Like, he Oh, comes he's back. in this season. Yeah, he comes back in the season in a pretty big way. Yeah. I, but we I, haven't I, seen <laughs> him on the screen since right. season one. Yeah. So, I mean, feel bad for him. You know, they're bringing him back and signing him on for the second season. He's not even on screen hardly. Well, he's in, I mean, we talked about it uh, on season one, episode eight, the finale, but he's on screen just for that one line. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so... Uh, I, I wonder if this is all designed by some sort of like contract dispute. Like, if this, is this something from like outside interfering into the show or ooh, did they would, willingly want it to be like this? I would definitely not know the answer to that. I think we're just speculating here. If we yeah, get into that territory. I, I have no idea either. I'm, I know there are some resources that kind of recount the days when they were shooting Northern Exposure. I believe um, the actor that plays Ed Chigliak, uh, Darren Burroughs, has a sort of a memoir about it, I'm sure there's sort of a a collected history of it, but but I don't know if they would ever get into you know sort of the nitty gritty stuff like that. Uh, I certainly yeah. don't know. But let me take us on a tangent real okay. quick. We talked about it. Rick only appeared in uh, one split second in the scene, and and I want to say in this episode, I noticed in several split seconds in the very background at the brick, Dave appears. Yeah. So. He has no lines yet. He hasn't been formally introduced as like a true recurring character. And spoiler alert, Davis the Cook, he's kind of a relatively minor character in the show. I don't, I don't know if he actually ever gets any plot lines of his own, but he's just one of the constants of the show. There's Dave. He's the cook. Yeah, he's been, I, I know when he's first mentioned, it's a different actor. Um, we may have talked about it, Charles, whenever, in, in, a, in a season one episode. But uh, the actor that you see working the grill and the brick in this episode is the actor that will go on to be known as, as Dave and who I believe um, really identifies as being part of the show. I know he's been in the past part of Moose Fest up in Roslyn, Washington. Also, yeah, we, we were kind of remarking, Jay, that uh, we were very surprised that you've been to Roslyn. So I just listened to um, yeah. your, your season one wrap up. Uh, I listened to that episode of your podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, I heard you guys talking about, it. and you made a comment saying that I had been to Moose Fest. Well, let me let me stand to correct you. I have not <laughs> been to Moose Fest. Oh, corrections! But I have, I have been to Roslyn, Washington. There you go. Okay. Um, yeah, with that, and that's the site where they filmed the exterior shots uh, for Northern Exposure mm-hmm. and uh, the brick. The brick. Right? Yes. Well, no, the inside of the brick I think is a set. What? Because really? the inside of the real brick doesn't look like that. Are you kidding um, me? We oh, didn't explore what? it too much. No. I mean, I could in believe fact, it being a set, I guess. That makes sense. And the inside for... of the real brick they have along the bar at the very bottom is the where the spittoon would be. Well, they'll have like a like a uh, little boat regatta race in the spittoon. I that's remember fun. that being advertised <laughs> as a thing. Which, I mean, if you think about it, that's kind of gross. But uh, maybe it's a thing that Roslinians do. I don't know if that's what you uh, <laughs> call the collective of the people from Roslyn. But. Wait, so it's a... They have boat races in the spittoon, but it also functions as a, as a spittoon or... I don't know if it functions <laughs> as a spittoon. That's what I was saying. If that's it does, it then that's, that's the kind of gross part, you know? Yeah. Uh, anyway, wow. yeah. So the interior of the brick, I believe, is a set. And, but the exterior, like when you see them all run out at the end of the episode, that's, that was shot right. in Roslyn, Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all the dogs that you see in the street and everything, the, the, the mural that's on the wall with the camel, mm-hmm. Roslyn's oasis, or Cafe. it says something about oasis on it. Yeah. yeah. That's there. That's still there in the town. Nice. That's amazing. Well, yeah, we were talking about when they're running on the exterior at the end of the episode, kind of ties into the next scene that happens here at the beginning. Um, we get 
sort of the Chris in the morning sermon about spring. Well, before that, we get the uh, the ice cracking. You hear that pretty distinctly. Yeah, it's we get all. Or no, these, no, you get the song. Yeah, the song, um, which also plays at the end during the running of the bulls. Uh, the song is "D.W. Sweet" by Lindsey Buckingham um, from Fleetwood Mac fame, but it's a really interesting song. If you haven't seen the episode, I think it works perfectly in the episode, uh, especially as the closing number of the show. And thankfully it's on the DVD, of course, but it's a cool song to listen to in the context of the episode and the album itself that it's on is, is really interesting. But yeah, I just wanted to, to speak about that for a moment. You were saying we see sort of an ice, ice, ice. landscape. We see dripping icicles, lots of ice melting. And Chris is doing his whole sermon about, uh, what is it? Persephone is coming back. Persephone yeah. being, being the goddess of vegetation. Do you guys know the story behind that? Yes. Perse- uh, go ahead, Charles. Oh, Jane has a story. So, okay. I think <laughs> if I remember correctly, um, Persephone is the daughter of Hestia and she gets captured by Hades and taken as Hades' queen. Hades and Hestia negotiate some kind of deal where Hestia spends half the year in Hades, the domain of Hades, and the other half of the year she spends on Earth tending to nature and, and the fields and the harvest and everything. And so Persephone coming back from Hades to Earth, is that represents the uh, spring equinox. There we in, go. In the, the seasons of our Earth. That was the explanation. Yeah, that's basically the explanation. And everyone has like uh, small little changes to them. But yeah, the general gist of it is that she got kidnapped and uh, she's allowed sometimes to be on Earth. And that's the, uh, like you said, the spring equinox, the arrival of the fruits being able to bloom. And then when she leaves, it's winter. When she returns back to the underworld, uh, a little neat little thing is that the reason she has to stay in the underworld is because she tasted some of the food of Hades. Hmm. And that food is pomegranate seeds. Very cool. Yeah, that is the story of Persephone. But yeah, Chris in the Morning is referencing that spring is about to come, but it's not quite here. We still have to go through the very last phases of spring fever. Yeah, everything is kind of reaching a boiling point. Um, as we mentioned for for Joel and Maggie, you know, how many episodes can we continue <laughs> showing them dreaming about each other without them, you know, meeting? But such, um, yeah, <laughs> such a long will they, won't they? Yeah, uh, this episode really ramps it up. I think oh, yeah. so. And on top of that, everyone's libido is running amok, I believe is a direct quote from mm-hmm. maybe Ruth Ann or someone. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait, hang on. Before we get into that, uh, how do you think Maurice felt about Chris just howling into the microphone? Oh, yeah, yeah. So Chris, Chris ends <laughs> his little sermon with a very primal energy howl, um, channeling sort of a... Ed back in, what episode was that? The Russian flu. When Ed... Uh, oh, the Good Morning Vietnam? Yeah. <laughs> and he does his little Three howl. screams into the mic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, what, what, Charles, you think, what do you think? Uh, Maurice would take offense to that? Or? Well, I just think it's like, I mean, think about it. If you're just listening to Chris in the morning and you're just listening to a sermon and he ends it by just a howl, like you're just listening to your radio and just hear this great howl. It's like, oh, okay, that's just Chris doing his thing. Like, all well, right. I, I hope he has like a compressor or like a limiter on his voice so it's not, you know, someone listening to their boombox. It doesn't destroy their speakers. Uh, <laughs> he's screaming. But no, that's a good point. But yeah, I, I think that um, I, I, we, we go to the next scene where it's Joel is picking up some quote-unquote, magazines from Ruth Ann. He's expecting, um, I think she terms it lascivious lingerie, or maybe that's what he's saying. He he claims he wants to, what, buy like a robe for his mom. But it's quite obvious, like Ruth Ann 
uh, offers him a Playboy magazine. Apparently, one of the people in town was a subscriber that had passed away before his subscription ended. So she just has all these Playboy magazines that never went out. I feel like people have, you know, checked these magazines out in the past. This is a common occurrence, especially since this happens every year in Sicily. Yeah, uh, it seems to be a popular uh, checkout item for them. And Joe mentions that he's only going to read them for like the articles that it has in them. Yeah, he's, yeah. he says, uh, you know, some uh, very notable writers um, contribute to Playboy. Philip Roth, Norman Mailer, Raul Dahl. Yeah. <laughs> but He doesn't pronounce Raul Dahl like that, does he? He says something, <laughs> yeah. he, he says it differently. Raul Dahl, he puts like a guttural H in there somewhere. Yeah. That's a good point. There's a good reason, though, why uh, there's such great articles in Playboy, though, because apparently back in the 60s and 70s, Playboy would pay three times as much as the other publications to have authors be in their magazine. So that's why you can get a bunch of great authors like Philip Roth. I think Margaret Atwood and Stephen King also published in. Do you have any idea why they were trying to, were they just trying to like differentiate themselves from like Hustler or something or like Penthouse Uh, or something? Honestly, I don't know the answer to that. I can only offer a hypothesis, but I think that maybe they realized that it was such a, a uh, lewd magazine that they decided to just throw a curveball and be like, oh, you know what? We can be a lewd magazine, but we can also just offer really great articles as well on both fronts. Maybe um, to try to like curb some of the criticism or something. Yeah. I, I think that's could be one theory behind it, but otherwise I don't really know. Um, Jay, what do you think? I, I have no idea. Honestly, <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, well just going off of that, um, you know, it, it's pretty interesting that I don't think anyone in, in the town is necessarily, well, I guess Joel and Maggie hide it from each other, but they're not, no one's ashamed to kind of openly talk about sex drive and libido. And Ruth Ann speaks about it pretty bluntly and directly. Joel even speaks about it bluntly to Shelley in a couple scenes later. True. Yeah. Whenever they're reading the D.H. Lawrence, uh, yeah. you know, and he says it to Ed as well, whenever he's somehow yeah. Ed... Oh, this is, well, it isn't a dream, I guess. But in this dream, Ed um, finds an Eskimo mate for Joel. That um, was a dream. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, I just thought it was funny, but also maybe slightly progressive that they're talking about, um, you know, for lack of a better term, Ruth Ann phrases it a, a onanism, you know, like autoerotic. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She is savvy to uh, that type of uh, predilection. But I think it's really interesting that the townsfolk of Sicily get swept up into some broad uh, enchantment of sorts. Because it happened in the season one finale of Aurora Borealis, where everyone was kind of having that uh, moonlight fever. And this time it's a spring fever. And I think it's really interesting how they just can't control themselves from external forces. Uh, It seems to happen a lot to this town. Yeah, it's very similar to Aurora Borealis. You're right in that manner. But yeah, I guess it's just sort of like part of the the charm, the character of Sicily, Alaska is that, you know, it's very far away from civilization, but it also has some weird mystical powers like the Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights, and this, you know, this weird phenomenon that happens every spring. Libido increases, crime increases. Yeah, I guess you could also argue like, you know, when flus happen, just anything that happens to the townsfolk, they Flu all just season. change behavior. Wow, yeah. yeah. 
well, I guess within themselves. It's, it's cool. I like that the uh, the showrunners are trying to focus on, you know, it's small scale because it's just one small town, but, you know, they, they try to incorporate all of the town, the people and the locations as much as they can into the main plot of the episode. That's true. And I, I do I do like that. I like it when it's a monolith and you can just uh, see what they're about. I did want to hop, uh, before we leave this Playboy um, mm-hmm. issue, Joel seems to be most excited about reading an interview with Shintaro Ishihara. Are you guys familiar with Shintaro Ishihara? I remember him saying that, but I don't know who that is. Uh, no, who is that? Yeah, so the name sounded kind of familiar, but honestly, I had to look it up. Um, Shintaro Ishihara is, today, he's sort of this conservative right-wing politician um, in Japan. He was the governor of Tokyo from 1999 and through 2012. So, like you know, very right-wing conservative but, you know, this episode aired in 91. So I went back and kind of looked, uh, tried, to, tried to find more about his history. And in fact, on Wikipedia, under his entry, under the um, subject, Other Controversial Statements, uh, they, they reference an interview that he gave to Playboy in 1990. So this is probably the interview... <laughs> What? <laughs> Joel wants Joel's to holding the magazine with the controversial interview. Um, wow. But again, you know, not to give a history lesson, but in this interview, Ishihara stated that the rape of Nanjing, which is um, this, this very infamous massacre that took place, uh, he says that it's basically sort of a, a story made up by the Chinese to tarnish the image of Japan. Oh, so he's a terrible human being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really does sound like he is a terrible human being. I don't understand why Joel is so excited to read this interview. Maybe after he, having read the interview, he'll, he'll have changed his mind. Maybe he was excited because it was controversial. And somebody, ah. maybe one of his doctor friends from New York called him up and said, hey man, you got to read this you interview by this guy. This. He's crazy. But it's in Playboy magazine. Gosh, I really hope so. Because the more and more I dug into this um I like to think that Joel still has some kind of connection with people he knew in uh, in school or like back in Flushing or something. I think he does. He mentions uh, he mentions like his colleagues playing golf somewhere. Yeah, he was also going to visit them whenever he was talking right. about his was. vacation back to New York. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was in the last, last episode. episode or a couple episodes the, ago. Yeah, episode four. Episode, episode four. four. What I did for love. Yeah, he was going to hang yes. out and go see Sinead O'Connor. So yeah, I think you're definitely uh, correct in assuming that Jay that he that he um. Oh, uh, he also said something in the Playboy interview that wasn't uh, not nearly as inf- uh, terrible or inflammatory, <laughs> but also still kind of inflammatory. He said uh, to that same interview in 1990, he said, uh, apparently he was a movie director of sorts. Yeah. Um, he said, if I had remained a movie director, I can assure you that I would have at least become a better one than Isira Kurosawa. <sighs> that's that's okay. a big statement to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean... They can just, let's just, I don't even really want to talk about this guy anymore. <laughs> He's such a blowhard. <laughs> let's wrap this up. I want to say that in, in this scene, Ruth Ann reminds me of like a, like a dealer. She deals, <laughs> she deals. Playboy uh, magazines. She deals Playboy mags to Joel. And then when Maggie right. walks in with the tapes, did you enjoy beefcake bingo, Maggie? Yeah. And um, we don't, the only response we get from Maggie is she just sort of almost rolls her eyes and kind of looks away, but then the shot cuts away. It's an interesting way Who to end this what scene. happened next. But yeah, that's, that's kind of, that what, that's what Ruth Ann reminds me of. What was the name of the magazine that uh, Maggie was going to rent out? 
She had rented a, a show called Beefcake Bingo. Beefcake Bingo. <laughs> yeah, probably pornography. That pornographic, is a great uh, title. <laughs> movies. Yeah, she plays it off. She says it's uh, Bambi and Death in Venice, or like the <laughs> movies that <Yes>. she rented. <laughs> Let's talk about plot lines. Yeah. yeah. And kind of launch into that. Jay, take us where you'd like to go. Well, so in terms of plot lines of this episode, in past episodes, there have been fairly distinct plot lines, but in this one, they almost intertwine a little bit. And I remember Charles talking about how he kind of likes that when the plot lines intertwine a bit instead of being these distinct things. So yeah, we've, got, right. uh, we've got the radios being stolen. That's mm-hmm. sort of a plot line. Uh, and that kind of affects multiple characters and multiple characters are involved in that. And then we've got the, uh, the fight that's another plot line. Hauling is itching for a fight with somebody. Right. Um, and then we've also got the Joel Maggie romance plot line. Right. I think those are three main plot lines that are sort of intertwined together with the other characters throughout this entire episode. I would also add on and say that because of the radio theft, it leads to the plot line of Maurice and yes. the officer. I, yes. I'm sorry. I don't know her name. I, Barbara I know he said it once. Was it Beverly Samansky. or Barbara? Barbara. Oh, Barbara. Sergeant okay. her name is, I don't know. Right. If, Sergeant, I actually don't know if sorry. she says Barbara in this episode. But. Her, she does. She does. Oh, okay. um, right at the end. Maurice calls her. Ah. Yeah. But at first she says that her first name is Officer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, What's your first name? He's trying to get uh, more buddy-buddy with her. Right. Maurice has um, called in a police officer from out of town. Well, we're jumping ahead now. No, no, let's, we got we to gotta go back with radios getting stolen, right? Yeah. Well, well Maurice uh, let me isn't offer offended this. at first. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, let me offer this. Maybe, um, so what happens first is Joel gets his radio stolen and he goes to complain to Maurice about it. I think it's a really interesting scene because it's early on in the episode and a lot of it is simply exposition. Maurice is explaining that whenever spring happens, once a year, there is an increase in crime, uh, people go crazy. And uh, throughout this entire scene, as this expository dialogue is happening, we get a lot of camera movement, actors moving around. Uh, it's very interesting to watch. And then whenever we actually get down to the meat of sort of character-to-character conversation, we settle down into close-ups. Essentially what's happening is Joel's complaining, and Maurice explains, again, ex- exposition, that there is no police force in Sicily. How can they not hire at least one police officer? I don't... Apparently, it's there's never crime except for spring break during the the melting of the ice, the meltdown. I think uh, Ed calls it at one point. Well, I just want to say that if there was a police officer, at least one in the town, then a <laughs> hauling plot line would not exist. Because I don't know the how fight. he hasn't been sued for aggravated assault yet. Like he is just <laughs> looking to fight people. That's it's a true. good point, Charles. We can. Uh, yeah, he's he's definitely. What does he do? Like pours milk on somebody and mm-hmm. steps on someone's toe refuses to give somebody a spoon. Yeah. <laughs> but no one no one takes no one up from on Sicily. It. No one from Sicily wants to fight Holly. Right. They know. They Sergeant Savansky will kind of I, I guess that's where where you're going with uh, the uh that Holling being the, the plot line, the fight is is Sergeant Samansky. She kind of yeah. ties those two storylines together, the the radios and the fight. Mm-hmm. But real quick going back to the the radios. Maurice um, is very nonplussed. About the whole situation. (laughs) Like, this is normal. This is what happens. We accept it. And there's, he said, he says it's about balance. Yeah. If you bring in cops, then you're going to get robbers. Yeah. Yeah. And Joel, that frustrates Joel. That frustrates Joel. Joel wants it to be like New York. And he says, in New York, you can call 911 and the police will show up eventually. They might not do anything, but at least they show up. Yeah. At least there's that comfort. Sort of ragging on police officers there. But (laughs) he had that blanket, a security blanket. 
Exactly. And actually what Maurice says, um, what, you know, if you bring in cops, I guarantee you're going to get robbers. I know it's actually true that a bigger police force doesn't mean a safer city. I think it's actually been shown that the opposite is true. Hmm. I think actually it has to do with like how officers are deployed, not really just the amount of officers. The There's more, probably a lot of variables that go into it. Yeah. So, so what he, what he is saying is sort of true. If you bring in cops, there will be more crime. But mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you guys? What do you guys think about this? Uh, the philosophy here, this moral debate. Yeah, I'm really glad that we're centering in on this one quote because that was the one thing that caught my ear as well. Was that uh, if you're gonna bring if you're gonna bring cops, you're gonna get robbers. It sounds like a uh, bad uh, retort, but it might be true. I don't know. Well, yeah. I, I think it's a, I, I'm going to argue and say that it's a kind of a strange quote to come from Maurice's mouth because what he's advocating essentially is that if you try to fight against criminal behavior, you're going to get fought back. So instead of fighting back at all, you're just going to take it on the chin and just. Mm. Yeah, because that's know, what he's trying to fate. sell to Joel. He's like, don't worry about it. Just take it. Like take it on the chin. Yeah, but that doesn't seem like something that Maurice would say. If Maurice is a self-made man and it seems like he would be the type of person, at least to my characterization of him so far, is to fight back and to not accept things the way they are. Well, remember, mm-hmm. spring is is springing. Um, the ice has not yet broken, so everybody's still under this strange influence. So maybe that's something that's driving Maurice to respond in this way. Whereas oh. I, I totally agree that it doesn't make sense that for Maurice's character to normally respond as this nonchalant about the whole situation whereas he he'd be more lawful let's Assertive, go hunt the guy down yeah. or whatever you know but it's spring yeah that's, it's about to be spring that is another thing if we haven't made it clear about spring in sicily is everyone's role is reversed and, and we'll get into that in a second uh, there's some very obvious role reversals of of character also um just talking about like Maurice's actions. Well, when it actually does happen to him, whenever he gets things stolen from him, he doesn't take it on the chin. He goes out That's and right. gets, so he does. That's get, right. I think he's just it's trying It's okay to as long get, as it's happening to somebody else, but exactly. the moment, the moment it happens to Maurice, he, he barges into the brick and he's, he's in a fury about somebody stole his radio. Now he's offended, which that's more in line with the typical Maurice character. I think we, we expect. Right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's really interesting that you bring that up, that it would be a role reversal. So somebody that's a lot more aggressive would be more, quote unquote, docile and vice versa. That's a really good point, Jay. Yeah. Do we want to talk about that for a second? So when Sergeant Szymanski does come to town, uh, I believe she says she came down from sourdough. I wrote mm-hmm. that down. She drove 500 miles. And she was uh, trying to, what, trying to like capture a bear or something? A uh, rabid bear. <laughs> but um, throughout the episode between Maurice and Sergeant Szymanski, we can tell that Maurice has some affection for her and he's doing some very atypical things uh, for his character. For instance, he, you know, makes tea for Sergeant Szymanski. He does her ironing. He He offers her a cookie. Yeah, he sort of takes like, I guess, a more feminine role, at least at the time, I guess. Whereas Sergeant Szymanski is this very sort of rough weightlifter. She's dedicated to her work over all else. And um, as hard as Maurice tries, she's not really returning his, um, his affections. Mm-hmm. This, is the second, this is the second romance sort of, almost romance in this case, that, that Maurice has had this season. True. The first one being his groupie from 
last episode, some some earlier episode in the season. Yeah, it I was the last I, episode. Mm-hmm. Her name was Ingrid, right? Ingrid. Ingrid, yes. So, and that one, the romance actually played out. In this one, Maurice is is trying, but Barbara's not um, responding in kind. Yeah. Let me just fast forward to the, can we just fast forward to the last scene with them? Yeah. Because we were kind of talking about it. Essentially, Sergeant Szymanski has to leave Sicily. Does she ever actually figure out I don't think she ever she figures She does not. Out. No, yeah. that's something I noticed by the end. Samansky, Officer Samansky was there to solve the crime of who stole the radios. And by the end of the episode, she has not solved that crime. But she leaves anyway. Hmm. So, I don't Maybe know. Maybe she's just really trying, trying hard to get really away from That doesn't really play to her character. Maurice. True, because she's super dedicated. She mentions that she has like some huskies or something that are going to tear up the couch if she doesn't her return. Shepherds. So maybe she's been gone for too long. But yeah, I'm surprised that she left without finishing the job. But if you... Go if ahead. you take a look, if you take a look at it from the wide lens, like if she had to report back to her officers, all she would say is like, "Yeah, I had to come to this small town. I beat the <laughs> snot out of one of the residents, and then I left, and I didn't solve the crime." Yeah. <laughs> That's all I did. That's she, a terrible well, police report. Well, I mean, she probably would leave that part out, like the the whole weightlifting and boxing part. She would leave that out. All but, of the things that were against regulation. Yeah. yeah, but taking it taking it uh, in full perspective, she probably was thinking that there there are bigger problems to solve in Alaska, you know. She probably duty calls. But uh, what I wanted to get at is um, while, you know, the the romance doesn't necessarily work out between Maurice and Sergeant Szymanski, Maurice does get rejected. But I think at the end, before she leaves, Szymanski sort of tells Maurice, like right as she's leaving, about to exit the door, she turns around and says, uh, don't forget to lock your windows. And she kind of gives mm-hmm. him a smirk. What I'm trying to say, Barbara, is that I feel a great affection, uh, a great respect, admiration, and, and, and attraction toward you. I gotta get going. Lock those windows. It's a little amicable. I, I think she's trying to stay professional and, and, you know, she probably, again, probably doesn't share the same affection towards Maurice, but uh, she's not. She like, had just got done saying that she could never respect somebody who did her ironing. Yeah. So there and you then go. She, yeah. The, the, uh, the I gender think roles are very clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were you saying? I said, I think that was more of a, a professional thing from her. Don't yeah. forget to lock your windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but what I'm trying to say is um, she's not like, she doesn't hate Maurice at the end of this. Mm. You know, yeah, she's not in mean. love with him, but it's not like necessarily a bad. She gives him sort she of wasn't a smirk trying and to get smiles. Away. Yeah, yeah. Well, Charles, what do you think about uh, Sergeant Szymanski? It's a new character. We I like to kind of like use you as a metric for these new introductions. Yeah, like a litmus test of sorts. Yeah. Uh, I I like her. Uh, I don't. I, I would definitely would not say that she's one of my favorite characters so far that's been introduced to the series. I, I understand the role that she's trying to fulfill in this episode. Like she's an outsider and only an outsider would try to fight hauling. Like none of the townsfolks are going to take him on at right. this point. Like so they, through yeah. many years of spring fever. They're like, Oh, he, he can take on anyone in the town. I'm not taking him on. But, um, so I, I understand why she's here still. Even right now, I'm trying to understand her characterization though. Like well, why she was written in that manner. Here's what I'm going to say uh, about Sergeant Szymanski. I'm not a big fan of Sergeant Szymanski. She, to me, she seems sort of like, she's like a caricature of, she always does have, has sort of the same tics as a character. She does the, you know, like she does the sniff uh, in between, in between phrases. 
I, I I will defend that by saying like as an actor's choice, I I do like that just from an acting uh, standpoint. I think that like that shows a little bit of the character, and it's probably not written into the script to be like Sergeant Shemansky does like a uh, sniff. Yeah, um, she I chooses think, to do that as a decision as an actor. I think you're right. I do she's, like that. She's kind of jumping into this costume, but that's what mm-hmm. it ultimately feels like to me. Like she's trying to become, she's trying to really become this character, but in uh-huh. the end, it just feels not real. Feels like a character to me. Uh, I guess you know maybe hmm. you maybe you kind of like you kind of dig that you kind of like the the way she's playing it. Yeah, at least for me, I, I find that the way that the actress portrayed this character, I did like it. I just, if anything, my problem is with the writing of it, which I guess in a way that's sort of what you're trying to hit on as well mm-hmm. is mostly just that she's just a caricature of what a beat cop would be. Um, but why don't we get? Jay's been on this. Jay, what do you think of this character? <laughs> I I like Barbara Samaski. I think she's a great character. I think she's a good contrast to Maurice, especially in, in the way he's behaving this episode. Yeah. Um, it's a good juxtaposition to put this. I don't mean to be offensive when I call her masculine, but that's sort of the role that she adopts in this no, episode yeah, is the more a, masculine definitely role. Definitely a gender swap kind of. And Maurice adopts the more, the more f- traditionally feminine behaviors in the episode. Um, I think it's a good juxtaposition between the two. And I, I like the way that Officer Szymanski plays it against Maurice. I, I, I understand and I see what you guys are saying about how it feels kind of canned, like they just dropped a whole bunch of character traits that you would expect from a beat cop into <laughs> Officer Szymanski, and that's her. But I think that, um, I can't say too much more without spoiling it, but <laughs> I like Officer Szymanski. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't hate her character. Just a, just a little criticisms. You don't hate her character just like she doesn't hate Maurice? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that is a great... I, I can leave the room and, and give a smirk to Szymanski and see her next time. But, <laughs> but uh, also in this scene, we learn a little bit of a show Bible history about Maurice. He had 15 confirmed kills over Pusan, he says. Oh, yeah, because he's trying to that. prove his manliness to. That's right. Right when uh, when Samantha's leaving, and he's trying to, to trying to ask her out, trying to court her. Yeah, he's trying to prove his manliness, I guess, by you know telling her that he served in the Korean War and apparently killed fifteen people. I I understand how it's seen as masculine, but if you just take a look at it from another perspective, it's also kind of strange because yeah, it's, it's like, like saying like, Oh, murder is masculine behavior. Like that's well, think what- about it. <laughs> think about it from officer Samancy's perspective. She says that she was in the air force. So surely she can respect, I, oh, that's I true. assume she can respect a military that, uh, performance. Oh, like, okay. Yeah. Right. That, that makes you know sense. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess they have that sort of bond to the United States military, but, um, Oh, you know what? I also really liked, um, uh, speaking on that is that Holling references that he is an astronaut and in the past episode he says that's usually what uh impresses a lot of women but with Maurice. this officer yeah, yeah Maurice sorry. Maurice is uh saying yeah. that but sh- uh the officer doesn't even bat an eye yeah she just kind of like no. sells through it and I think she doesn't yeah a nice little uh uh, Maurice nice assumes that she thing. knows it already, but they just sort of gloss over it to whatever the next thing that happens. Yeah. yeah. Szymanski's not impressed. Care. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll give that to Szymanski. She definitely fills like the role of like definite justicier. Like that's really her only objective is she's very sort of socially cold or not necessarily cold, but just kind of like a stone in a way, like unmoving. But, but she does indulge in her own personal interests, like the weightlifting, yeah. the boxing. 
That's true. She does so, indulge a little bit. So there's she's more human than we realize. I don't think she's as canned as you guys made her out to be earlier, but she's got uh, she's got her own motives. Yeah, she has a know? little she has a little bit of that in this episode. I think that's to help her open up to why she would so quickly agree to uh, accept this boxing challenge from Holling because otherwise if she's if she's sort of like this straight A police officer that doesn't mess around, she, she would in no way take that challenge. But we can see already, like you said, the weightlifting, um, she indulges in sort of the activities that she likes. Can we talk about the uh, intro shot of Holling when we, uh, the first time we see him this episode? Because I love it. Go for it. It's the one where uh, you just see his face, but the camera is incredibly close up to him and then it just pans out, but he's got this look in his eye that right. is just Does hilarious. It, I totally forgot about that. Does it kind of like dolly back with him? Like it pulls yeah. back? Still, like he's, back with them. he's leading the, the mm-hmm. camera, but he doesn't change his expression. Like he's still staring off into the middle yeah. distance. I think he has like a he has like a little tick in his in his lips or like his mouth, right? Because he's like trying to fight this urge to just like he's snap and agitated. smack yeah. someone in the face. So that's his <laughs> that's his sort of role reversal. He's like he's normally the guy who takes nature photographs and doesn't hunt or anything like that, but. Come he spring. says himself that he wouldn't hurt a fly through the whole year, but just this time of the year he wants to inflict pain. Which, <laughs> oh honestly, gosh. if somebody said that to me, I'd be I'd be shaking in my boots. Um, you know, that's not like a normal thing you you say to somebody. Say to somebody, also, somebody else, at least in my universe. He's the mayor as well. That's true. That's <laughs> a good no point. Holly's the mayor. How can title. the mayor be expected? Oh my god! It's an honorary title. Oh, in this scene, we were talking about it briefly. I wanted to point this out. Uh, Marie, I'm oh, sorry. Hauling does pour milk over um, a customer's head just to try well, to. That customer him. comes back. I don't know if you realize that. He's the guy in the ring, right? Is he a ref yes. or something? He's the ref in the ring. Yeah. So he'll he'll make. Oh, a, is he really? I didn't yeah. catch yes. that. He's like a younger sorry. actor, so he's kind of easy to. to you were saying Holland poured milk all over him. Yes. Uh, so. That guy gets milk poured on his head. In the very next shot, you can see on his shirt, he's got like the a milk stain. Yeah, but it's like uh, it's like this weird kind of... It's like curded. It looks like um, cottage cheese or something. Uh-huh. I can only assume that, you know, if you spill milk on your on your clothes, it it kind of just looks like water would, you know, it just looks like a wet Well, spot. Lee, why don't you go test that real quick for us? <laughs> <laughs> I have oat milk in the fridge. I don't know if that would Does be the same. Work? It's already <laughs> more same? watery than milk. But uh, we'll try. We'll test that later today and report back. We'll, uh, we'll put that up on the Patreon. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's not real milk. It's it's uh, some sort of like uh, the special effects artist or the yeah know, the art person decided to kind of make it appear more like milk in that shot because if you just poured milk on it, it wouldn't really read as milk on camera. Uh, That's true. It just looks like water, I guess. Um, sorry, we're getting it. Holling has this. <laughs> okay. Holling has this weird um, obsession in this episode, and and in the same way, Shelley has her own compulsion to continually read. She's she's picked D. H. Uh, Lawrence's The Rainbow to read. Well, she didn't really pick that one. You know, like it's, so it's not like she went to a library and said, let me read this book. Mm-hmm. That was the book that happened to be under the table egg so that the table wouldn't wobble in the kitchen. <laughs> at the yeah. but and that's just, why she's reading it. Yeah, but it, it's totally, it's out of character for her. She even says she would much rather be scrubbing the grill or filling the ketchup bottles mm-hmm. instead of reading this book. But that's her reversal as she becomes sort of this intellectual. But she doesn't know why she's doing it at first. Yeah, she has, yeah, it's like almost like she's possessed or she has this compulsion. And, uh, you know, she's got, uh, we should also mention she's got like 
thick rimmed glasses. So she's like brainy and nerdy in this episode. <laughs> uh, Are you guys yeah. familiar with uh, The Rainbow by D.H. Lawrence? No, I'm not. Not. I didn't either. I had to uh, Wikipedia it, but apparently it's a very sexual book. Yeah, I feel like a lot of uh, isn't isn't uh, D.H. Lawrence kind of known for uh, being censored or being banned for that. Yeah. In fact, the rainbow was, uh, it was so obscene slash sexual that it was banned for 11 years in Britain. Wow. So makes sense that Shelley would be reading that this episode. But who bought the book in the first place? I would, uh, I would imagine maybe it came from Ruth Ann's uh, library or something. Nobody or, ever checked it out. Holling walks over to the library to Ruth Ann and says, hey, I need something to prop up my table leg about this thick. Nah. And Ruth Ann says, <laughs> here, look, this is the perfect thing. Nobody ever checks out this book. <laughs> and no, she, hands think, him, she hands him the rainbow. It obviously, we obviously have more here. likely. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> obviously more likely is... Uh, Ruth Ann is getting rid of boxes of old books, you know? Oh, so, okay. So they just like pick up a box of old books and they, I don't know, it ends up under the, under the kitchen table somehow. Do we want to talk about the resolution of this plot line? Oh, uh, yes. Which, wait, which one is this? There's <laughs> so many. The Hauling? The Hauling? Uh, hauling yeah, yeah. The crap beat out. So Hauling's is sort of like a minor plot line, but this will tie it together with Samansky before mm-hmm. we move on to uh, other things. Yeah, go ahead, Charles. Yeah, so... Uh, is going to be the only one to uh, throw down the gauntlet. I, well, I guess not throw down the gauntlet. What is it? Like, pick up retreat? the gauntlet. Yeah, pick up the gauntlet <laughs> that Holling is phrase? throwing down. Holling throws down the gauntlet. Szymanski picks it up. Mm-hmm. And they get into some sort of makeshift boxing ring. Do you guys, can you guys tell where the boxing match is held? Is it in, it's the, in brick? the brick? Looks like I it's think brick. It's yeah. Yeah. converted it to a boxing <laughs> ring. Yeah. yeah, they built a little <laughs> boxing ring up in there. Yeah, and they start going at it. But uh, I guess... The ice, the cracking of it is so strong that it could be felt by the townsfolk because everyone acknowledges that it's cracking at this moment. They can hear it. I mean, the audience can hear it. I assume everybody in the town can hear it too. Yeah. If you turn the subtitles on, I'm pretty sure it'll say ice melting sounds. (laughs) Ice melting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And then once that happens, um, he kind of gets that urge just knocked out of him. Um, And he just doesn't want to fight anymore. He actually gets knocked out after that point. Yeah, he essentially... Immediately gives up. I thought it was interesting that um, Holly and Szymanski were, were in a grapple at the moment that the ice started breaking. Oh, wow. And the ref like was trying to pull them apart, and the ref was <laughs> saying, break it up, break it up. And oh, that's and when the ice, ice started breaking. Breaks. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> very cool, very cool. Nice catch. So this episode has obviously the major theme of breaking the ice from the figurative in the literal sense, because figuratively we're trying to break the ice on a lot of characters. They're trying to get out of their shell, whether yeah, it's get out of your comfort to, zone, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Getting out of that, or we're going to be uh, having the ice break literally in Sicily. But mm-hmm. the expression break the ice, I, I looked into it and it actually comes from Samuel Butler's uh, Hubertos. I believe that's how it's pronounced. It's a poem mm. in 1678, and it just okay. says, uh, the orator at last broke silence and the ice. So that's the first recorded time that we used break the ice in that context. And then when we skip forward a couple of hundred years. Uh, what year 18- was that? That was in 1678, actually. Okay. I believe it's also used in Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. Shakespeare was a little before 1670-something, wasn't he? Yeah, so that leads me to believe that maybe Shakespeare was the originator of the phrase, though the place that I had looked it up attributed it to Samuel Butler. Hmm. But uh, in the 1800s, we used to use these uh, ice-breaking ships 
that were specialized to break the ice in the polar regions. And when they okay. used it, the other ships can come in to get to where the ice previously was. Hence, yeah. you and broke the ice so them. other people can come in. Yeah. It's also used in Mark Twain in his uh, memoir, Life in the Mississippi. Really, the phrase is used a lot throughout history. I never even realized that. But I think that it's a very poignant theme that they're having throughout this entire episode. And we can dig more into this when we talk about Joel and Maggie What's your on. favorite icebreaker, Charles? My favorite icebreaker? Uh... Are you talking about like a phrase that like would are we break talking the about ice? Yeah, like if you had okay. to break the ice with somebody, what's your favorite icebreaker? Oh, huh. I do have an actual icebreaker, but it's not a phrase. Uh, I, I have like this uh, Polaroid camera that I like to bring around with me often. And just the sight of that uh, catches a lot of people's attention. So that usually leads to being my icebreaker because they'll so come you up use and like say a. It. A prop, not necessarily a prop, but a, an item as your mm-hmm. icebreaker. Yeah. yeah, and I don't use it for the purpose of being an icebreaker. It just yeah, happens it just so happens. One because I like having to take pictures and have it come out instantly and giving it to people. So yeah, where do you get the Polaroid film? Uh on the internet. <laughs> sounds like such a lame answer. Sounds like sounds like you got it illegally. I don't no. know how to answer that other way. On the but internet, right? You, you just ordered it. You yeah, found it, you ordered it. Somebody has a stockpile of it in their basement <laughs> and they sell it on eBay. I'm yes. Sure, you know. <laughs> uh, what about you, Jay? Do you, uh, do you have a specific icebreaker that you use? I don't have specific icebreakers. If I, I mean, the funny answer is, yeah, how much does an elephant weigh? How much enough to does break it weigh? the ice? Ah. How much does it often weigh enough to break the ice? Um, I, I don't know if I've ever used that. Usually, I'll just start talking to people, and I'll, I'll find some way to work in some sort of witty retort to what they're saying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about you, Lee? Oh, I don't have anything. You don't I've have got a, nothing for you. Lee just starts talking and hopes people listen to him. Yeah. <laughs> That's what this podcast is. <laughs> okay. So we're breaking the ice this episode. Where, where are we here? Maybe we can jump into Joel and Maggie or... Oh, we need... There's a bunch of things we need to talk about. We haven't talked about our favorite characters, Chris and Matt. And we haven't talked oh, about yeah. Joel and Maggie. Let's do Chris and Ed. Yeah, because we were already talking about the stolen radios. Uh, Charles, could you guess who the criminal was? Honestly, uh, I thought it might be Adam. I thought it was coming back. Oh, yeah. Dang it. Why didn't he return? That's a good thought. Yeah. I really thought, because, you know, wasn't that... That, 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 that was his thing, right? He was just stealing things from the town. He yeah. was. In his introduction. In fact, yeah, that's so I thought happened. it was Adam again. Yeah. Uh, I, watching the episode, obviously, I've seen it before, but it's so obvious that Chris is the one stealing. Like, he's basically yeah. promoting crime on the <laughs> airwaves of K-Bear, and no one's he figured is. this out. I guess Ed All of his it. soliloquies are are based on mayhem and chaos and, and, and spreading the anarchy and whatnot. And he, he says, he has a phrase that says, um, thank you for reminding us that we should never, ever lose touch with that wild and untamable spirit within us all. You know, mayhem's gotten a bad rap and chaos has taken it on the chin in these pathologically normal and rational times. Even up here in Alaska, we're turning our back on the beast. We've opted for the zoo where the lion can't eat you instead of the jungle where he can. Kel Damage, what a drag. I thought that was, yeah. that was a neat quote it's a nice, to it's sort nice of writing. represent the feeling of the times. But yeah, you were saying Ed figures it out. Yeah, I think, I want to say when I first watched this episode, I, I uh, didn't put it together. But Ed puts it I together. I didn't either. Yeah. It's kind of a surprise. It's a good surprise. Somehow they buried it. They did. Now that you know it, when you rewatch it, it's obvious, but somehow that, that's kind of the best mystery is yeah. there's clues throughout, but you don't really pick up on it. So good job. 
So Ed gets to wear a new hat in this episode. Uh, we always talk about, you guys are always talking about yeah. how Ed just sort of picks up these random, seemingly random roles. In this episode, he plays the uh, the detective. private investigator. Yeah. yeah. Detective Ed, private investigator. Well, what do you think case. about that, Charles? I love it, man. I was thinking when he pulled out that notepad <laughs> that like detectives use all the time, uh-huh. like PIs, when you're trying to solve a case, I was like, oh, this is where to go on. This is great. I want this. Yes. yes. So I was a huge fan of Ed doing that role. Uh, one thing that struck out to me that I could not tell if it was intellectually deep or the exact opposite was when Ed was telling Joel, he was showing him the map of where all of the things were stolen, all the radios. <laughs> he says like, oh, they're all like, look, look at the locations. And Joel says, they're scattered. Yeah, they're, they're scattered. They're random. And he goes, exactly. That's the pattern. It's a random pattern. pattern That's is that there's no pattern. <laughs> yeah. Don't you see it? What? The pattern. It sounds pretty random. Right. Now, look at this. Each flag represents a locale of a radio theft. Well, they, they look kind of scattered around. Scattered at random. It's a random pattern. That's the pattern. I'll keep you posted. And I was like, is that, is that uh, too deep for me to understand? I or think that's one like- of those low-key genius things that it just is, and we don't have to get it. It's, that, it's that native <laughs> intelligence for sure. Yes, you know, native intelligence. They kind of mentioned how, I think Marilyn says, uh, the the ice melting makes white people go crazy. So throughout the episode, Marilyn and Ed do not have role reversal. Ed thankfully gets to take on a new role, but it's not, um, you know, they, they don't act any differently uh, than, than And before. I guess it's also, it's only affecting residents of Sicily as well, because Officer Shemansky, since it's the first time we see her, this is the only way we know her to act. Yeah. So presumably... Only the white people of Sicily, Alaska are affected by the spring thaw. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, logistically, is that because maybe she's coming from 500 miles away? Is it even accurate maybe it's to still say? Winter? Yeah, is it even accurate to say that the climate is, is not spring yet? In, in Maybe sourdough is like uh, further up in elevation, and so it's going to take longer for it to melt. Yeah. Maybe, it's, maybe mm-hmm. it snows there year round. That's my best guess. But yeah, so Ed, hey, Ed also, does it look like, I'm pretty sure Ed has much bigger hair in this episode, right? His hair is kind of growing out. It is. I think so too. Yeah, yeah I remember I his hair right. in the first episode being really short. Yeah, and kind well, of straight. Relatively. Um, or straighter, maybe. I like the, when when he catches Chris red-handed, like his hand in the cookie jar. Yeah. And Chris just freely admits it. He's like, oh, you got me. Yeah. Like, way to go. I like that scene because uh, one for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that whenever Chris is explaining his motive, there's a lot of red in the background. Yeah, the, the lighting too in K-Bear is very, mm-hmm. very red. Talk to me again about this this whole red-blue the symbolism color, thing. Yeah, color, color theory here, uh, Charles. Uh, so whenever Ed is confronting him, there's a lot of red in the background that I... I believe it's supposed to represent like very sinister motives. But in this case, I don't necessarily think it's sinister, but more chaotic, which yeah. is, I believe can also be represented by the color red. Cause I don't believe that Chris is actually an evil or, or moral character. I think he, he even admits it. He says like, you know, sometimes I just, just got to do something bad to know that you're alive. Yeah. yeah. Essentially of that flavor. And people need to be reminded that everything is unpredictable. He says that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm glad it didn't, I'm glad it didn't go to a darker place though, because 
his thing was saying like, I, I just got to remind the townsfolk that anything could happen. It's like, I'm glad you didn't turn into like a murderer. Yeah, he's like, like a super villain. Do like villain. one murder a year to be like, let me remind oh, you guys oh, no. that murder still exists. Charles, you're always taking but, it to the darker. Oh, geez. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. G ran the podcast. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, no. So we talked about, we talked about Ed. I said Ed being a low key genius, which I think is something that Ty mentioned on uh, one of the season one summaries that he did. Yes. But, but the moment that Chris says to Ed, we solved the crime. Great. What are you going to do now? Yeah. Ed says, Oh, what do you mean? He has no clue. <laughs> yeah. The whole episode, Ed was like a dog chasing a mail truck. He, he knew he had to chase it. He knew he had to solve the crime, but he didn't know what he was going to do once he caught him. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. Um, the way they end the scene is really interesting. Chris gives Ed like a quick wink and, um, the reverse shot is Ed and he does a quick, a quick wink as well. And then it cuts very quickly. You know, I, I feel like a traditional edit would have lasted a little bit longer on this moment, but I like it. It feels more like a blink and you miss it. No pun intended sort of uh, edit that they chose here. I really like it. It's a cool button at the end of the scene, but I also do want to talk about the way the beginning of the scene is shot. Chris is reading what, like where the wild things are. At some point he's reading that. He does read that book, but I think that was earlier in the episode. Gotcha. I think he was doing another soliloquy about uh, mayhem, Mayhem. maybe, at that point. You're probably right. And as he's doing this, he sees Ed uh, through the window of, uh, the glass window of K-Bear. He sees Ed approaching with a big old cardboard box loaded with stuff. And um, I really like the way this is represented when Ed is waiting outside of the sort of the studio booth of K-Bear. You can see through the glass door... Chris sort of reclining and he's just watching Ed who's standing outside the door slowly pull out different electronic appliances from the box and it's clear that Chris is caught. You know, there's nowhere to run so he's just got to like accept being found out. But, uh, but you're right, Jay, like Ed doesn't really know what to do. No. <laughs> um, but, you know, they have a connection and... Yeah. It, I, I think uh, Ed gets sort of the firsthand sort of closure for this this plot line that Chris has been building the entire episode over the airwaves, sort of this uh, energy that he's trying to foster in the town. Ed gets to share that and understand it um, through Chris's eyes, which is nice. Overall, probably my favorite plot line. Yeah, uh, that was a that was a fun plot say. line. Yeah. Before really we like move on from this plot line, I do want to point out Ed uh, mentions the Ticonderoga number two, the pencil. Yeah. And I remember Lee always used Ticonderoga number twos in school. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I remember, I just have this distinct memory of you with a, uh, one of those pencils. Wow. I, it's been a while since I've used pencil, um, but I still have Ticonderoga. I like that. I'd also like to shout out the Palomino Blackwing. I was gifted a, a single Palomino Blackwing. I think they run for something like 20 bucks for like a box of 12 or maybe it's even fewer. That's but a pencil? Yeah, but they're really nice. Uh, look them up there. The, the lead is very soft. The eraser is very, um, it's just very chic, I guess. It's very luxurious pencil. <laughs> a lot of it is like, is it even worth it? You know, is it, is it, does it write better just because you paid more for it? Um, Do you bite it a certain way? Uh, I feel... Different than all your other pencils? I was going to say, I feel like I've dropped that habit, but I definitely haven't. Uh I don't think I bite that pencil though, so maybe that's why I, I feel you have like, more respect for it. Yeah, <laughs> I only have one of them. So, well, we are not sponsored by uh, Palomino, but if, if they want uh, to, if you 
Yeah, if you want to. If you're interested. Please send us some yeah. free, free products. That was an example of an ad. <laughs> of an ad read. What's the email address they can write into? It is northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. Northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. Jay's our new manager now. <laughs> we will absolutely show for you. If you send us some free pencils. Oh, of course, it's a great pencil. Uh, no, yeah, the reason, yeah, Jay was bringing that up too. Ed claims that's the reason how he found Chris. Because he found like mm-hmm. a pencil... The bite marks. Um, a single pencil. And it's the most the common The angle pencil. at which he was erasing yeah. something. That, that's what got me. And yeah. and that point, Chris was like, no, there's no way. There's no way. Yeah. You're not that good. You know, you're not, even though you have that native intelligence. Uh, but no, uh, Ed saw Chris in the act of stealing. That's actually how he caught Chris. Yeah. While the fight was I like going how they show that. Yeah. <laughs> this will kind of tie us back into a nice segue. During this sort of investigation, Ed does interview Joel. But it's really funny. Joel is in his office, um, kind of looking through a newspaper. Uh, what is he's the, dialing a, a hotline? Yeah, what is the hotline called? Yeah. I wrote it down. It's like sexy lady it, it hotline. Like, or let something. me tell you. Let me tell you my fantasies. Is is something that it it says. Oh, I don't know. It lists some price on there. He's dialing them up, and the, it happens a couple times in this episode where Fleischman is in his office having some sort of sexual daydream. fantasy, yeah, a daydream or something, or just, and then yeah, just, just interrupts. But as Ed has become known to do, that's what he does. He just in, walks in the middle of whatever Joel's doing. What's great about this interruption is um, you see Joel dialing this number or trying to dial it, and then we get a shot of the closed door, and it swings open. Like, it's not even as if Ed was, like, it just magically opens, and Ed is standing there. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> like, how did the door open? He's got this weird power of unlocking. Native, native yeah. intelligence. Man. Yeah, it's that mystical, you know, Indian powers. Sure. Uh, you guys can keep talking. I really got to use the restroom, though. Okay, All right. hit it, I'll Charles. Right All right, let's um, let's talk about uh, spoilers. No, we, we shouldn't. Let's talk about spoilers while Charles isn't here. Oh, my goodness. Uh, also in that scene, um, is that the scene where... So there there is a scene. I don't know if that's the scene, but Ed says that he knows a woman... Who mm-hmm. does Ed suggest that Joel meet this lady, or does Joel want to meet this lady? Joel is talking about not having a sexual release, essentially for ten months. Yeah, yeah, that's and how that's where it. the ten months thing comes right. up, right? Right, and so Ed offers up, "Hey, I I know a girl," and Joel's like, "Oh, that's very nice, but no, no, I can find my own my own women," is what he says. Mm-hmm. But then later, it's played out in one of Joel's daydreams, yeah, where he meets this girl that Ed knows. Betty. Um, <laughs> that was Betty, a funny right. name. Who <laughs> happens Eskimo. to uh, be played by the same actor as Maggie, Janine Turner. She looks exactly the same, just long hair and some furs. Okay, Charles is okay. I'm back. Charles Sorry is about back. That. Hey, welcome uh, back, Charles. We were talking about Betty. We didn't. We didn't. Don't worry. You didn't miss anything. But Joel goes to the igloo. Uh, do you remember Betty? This this character yeah. played by Janine Turner. Wait, are you? Yeah, it's the same actress. That was played by Janine Turner. Yeah. I mean, it looks, it's the same it looks exactly like Maggie, yeah. right? He even it says, Maggie. it looks like Maggie. I did not catch that Ooh. at all. Well, tell us about your perspective of this scene. Yeah, what did you think? <laughs> what did you see? Honestly, I <laughs> did not even see the resemblance. <laughs> I feel really bad now. Like, I really didn't. Like, she I looked, looked at like it and I looked more. at the actress. That's what Ed says. I That's really true, Ed does I, say that. I, I, I guess the hair just threw me off. And it's I was thinking, hair. I was like, oh, uh, she is conventionally... 
Yeah, well, I just thought she was like a conventionally uh, attractive woman. That's all I could tell from her from my first glance at it. She hadn't said any words of dialogue. I couldn't get any characterization <laughs> from her or personality. I just saw that and I was like, oh, okay then. That's just a character they're trying to introduce. Yeah, I didn't know that that was uh, played by the same actress. It's yep. crazy. And that's why she looks so much like Maggie. Yeah, that's why they, they bring that up. <laughs> but well, that, sort of, that sort of reiterates Joel's... Um, obsession with maggie and his, his dreams. dreams yeah they, they, again this is it, it ends because it's revealed to be a dream he like wakes up in his office i think that's when ed interrupts him and asks him about the uh the stolen radios yeah mm-hmm. um yeah but about that dream sequence i i like the on-screen subtitles so i, I guess it's Tlingit, but i don't know what language it is but ed has to serve as interpreter for this uh sort of first date and the subtitles the lettering is really nice but uh it's it's just funny because there's sort of this lost in translation miscommunication. Um, Joel is what he's equated to looking like a chipmunk. That's what Betty mm-hmm. says to Ed. Yes, I like how Ed responds back and says, "Oh, it's a pass, pass Doctor Fleischman." <laughs> wait, 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 Ed. What did what did she say? Um, sorry, it's a pass. That sort of flips the uh, Joel was exp- Joel didn't have high expectations for it. Right, he was apprehensive going in. He didn't he he didn't think that it was uh, that it was going to yeah, come through. That was a bad idea. But no, I guess when he sees Maggie, it starts to become this uh, fantasy dream. You know, like yeah. the others. A couple things about that dream sequence before we leave. Just uh, quirks that I want to point out. Um, whenever she's fixing the root beer. She chips ice off the wall of the igloo. Yeah, because it's made of ice. I, I didn't guess. catch that. And then whenever she hands Joel the cup, it's like just a generic wax paper cup. Like, why would you have that in the igloo? <laughs> That's true. He's kind of, I wonder, he's kind of uh, not attractive. Very, I mean, Rob Morrow, uh, Rob Morrow, I guess is how you say it. The actor who plays Joel, I think is very handsome, but in this scene, he's played up as kind of nerdy. When he takes that paper cup, that wax cup, he like wipes his mouth with the back of his hand. It's kind of um, uncouth, like uh, unmannered. He definitely smiles like a chipmunk, probably on purpose <laughs> in this scene. Yeah, he, he's not very, not very well represented. I wonder why it's root beer. Hmm. That's hmm. a good question. I don't know. Is that like a good first date drink? Like maybe it is for uh, for Eskimos. Yeah, I guess so. I, I had no idea. I can't why say there's any that. significance in root beer. I don't honestly. I don't think so. I don't think so either. I was just curious <laughs> why they had it. All right, you're right. We got to overanalyze this. We take every That's true bit. It's important. Someone put it on paper. I forgot about our mission statement. Yeah. <laughs> no, you you were you're doing it correctly. Um, all right, I think we've been kind of skirting it. Let's jump into Joel and Maggie. Joel and Maggie. So. Uh, as we said, all these dream sequences, there's one where Maggie enters Joel's office and she's sort of taking off all her clothes and talking very sultry and sort of um, seductive. Um, but I think it's sort of uh, lines that are meant for Ed because when Joel wakes up, it's Ed who's talking, not Maggie. <laughs> what, is, what does Maggie say in, in this seduction scene? She's like, you have to catch a thief or something. You know, like it's something that Ed would be saying, I think. Uh, like the way to catch a criminal is to think like one while she's That's uh, what she's saying. <laughs> That's yeah. a callback to Uncle Anku. Oh, catch a fish, think like oh, a fish. He definitely yeah. picked up some uh, Uncle Anku inspiration, probably living with. Uh, Uncle Anku for some period of time in his life. There's another dream sequence, uh, which is really interesting. I'm guessing it's 
coming back from a commercial break, we're sort of thrown into this uh, this setup where Joel is gripping a microphone, sort of singing this power rock song. It's Simply Irresistible by Robert Palmer. And there's all these female dancers in this like gray background. Um, they're all made up the same way. Red lipstick, tied back hair, very plain expressions on their face. And Joel's sort of like lip syncing along with this, uh, this track. Have you guys seen the music video for this song? I have not. I have not, though. I've heard the expression Palmer Girls before oh, being thrown out. Wow, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you kind of guessed it uh, from knowing that, Charles. The, uh, the music video is, a, this is an exact lift from the music video. Like, that's exactly what the music video looks like. So Joel's dreaming that he's in the music video. Yeah, which is possible. I guess the song came out, I think, in what was it, 1988. So yeah, it's like he probably saw this music video back in New York, and that's his sexual fantasy. <laughs> but I, I like how the music cuts out, and Joel is actually singing uh, kind of... Uh, off key or, you know, doing sort of bad <laughs> performance, but uh, the music cuts out and he's still singing and the, the girls sort of catch his attention and they want to get busy, I guess. Yeah, this is this is Joel's wet dream. And he admits within the dream, I guess he's sort of in control. Maybe it's a, a somewhat lucid dream that yeah. he's never, he's never consummated, consummated a sexual fantasy in his dreams. Um, and that's what always he, wakes he even, him up. he even says that, yeah, something always wakes him up. He even says that to Shelly the next day, which is one of those things where he's openly talking about um, yeah. his sexual dream, but they promise that it'll, it'll work this time. Yeah. And it's funny because this is like, how do you end this scene? Like the way it's ended is very strange because, um, he says something about like something always wakes me up. This never, mm -hmm. never can fulfill this. And pretty shortly after he says that you hear sort of this pinging and he, remarks on it. He's like, can you hear that? What's that pinging? Um, and they're like, no, don't, don't forget about that. Like, think about us. And, um, you know, I guess the pinging would be an alarm clock waking you up, but maybe it goes away. Like it, in fact, it doesn't wake him up. And, uh, oh, maybe he just chooses to ignore it because he's in control of the dream. Is he, I guess he's oh. finally, is that what it's supposed to represent? Because the way this scene concludes is, um, they cut the lights out and I guess they get to it, but, you know, as, as we, as we heard previously, Joel has never had that facility to be able to, to consummate an erotic dream, he says. But, um, yeah, I guess, is that part of the, the, the growth? I guess, or the <laughs> I guess there's two ways of overanalyzing it. The first is that the ping could be like a ping to return back to earth mm -hmm. or like to quote unquote, reality. to wake up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To reality. So therefore not fulfilling what the dream wants him to do or conversely it could represent that the ping means that you found something like a radar hmm. and oh. you found maybe uh finally the dream in which you can be fulfilled uh of his uh sexual fantasies so i guess that's two ways of overanalyzing it but otherwise yeah that ping kind of threw me for a loop i think it deserves this over over analysis because uh yeah, it, it seems like the answer would be clear. It's an alarm clock, but he doesn't wake up. So um, I want yeah, to bring know. something up as well uh, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. overanalysis. This is another one of those moments in the episode where Joel says he's extremely self-conscious. Right. You had you had brought that up before. I don't I don't remember how many times he says it, but <laughs> I know at least two times he says it. And this is one of those times in, in his dream with these women. Uh, he says he's extremely self-conscious. Do we need to do it out here in the open with the lights on? Yeah. And that's why. But m maybe the ping represents him, um, and we kind of mentioned this before, taking control and 
becoming less self-conscious. Yeah, kind of. Which like is kind of what happens by the end of the episode. Shedding his ah. skin, getting out of his comfort zone. Yeah. Um, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I could see that. Nice. Well, um, about halfway through this episode is uh, sort of the big moment. And uh, yes. I was certainly, the first time I saw this, it is an exhilarating scene, uh, at least for me. But I'd be very interested to hear, Charles, what do you think about, can you sort of pitch us off? Like what happens in the brick? Yeah, so they're having... I, Still not entirely too sure. Is he just having like a regular party at the brick? Oh, like, oh, actually, this is a good point. I didn't really realize this, but um, I checked up on uh, moosechick.com. Uh, it's a great resource for Northern Exposure, but apparently uh, this is supposed to be the meltdown dance is what it's called. It's another tradition, Sicily. I don't know oh. if they actually say that on screen. I didn't catch they it. Don't. But, they don't really play that up, but, but you can dancing. see Chris dancing Chris wildly in the background. Chris has this weird like, head-banging motion yeah. that's really, <laughs> really uh, obnoxious, and it's a perfect cutaway for this, uh, this, uh, this crazy yeah. scene that just went down, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're just at the meltdown party, I guess, bringing a lot of lasagna. That's, Everyone's brought that's lasagna. That's what everybody wants everybody to bring Everybody has a lasagna. It's a Garfield party over here. And the Joel's in the back. He brought Jello. He's chopping some bananas up into the Jello. <laughs> Obviously messed up the recipe, but not putting the bananas first yeah. before he did the Jello. Though, I, I mean, honestly, this kind of seems like a cereal situation where it doesn't matter <laughs> really too much which one you pour in first. Wait, 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 wait. Shouldn't it matter? Yeah, you always what? use cereal well, before milk. Wait, Because then yes. milk will splash up if you pour cereal into the milk. How heavy do you put your cereal in? Pretty deep. Charles, are you telling me you put your <laughs> milk first? Yeah, I do the milk because um, you're crazy. I will, well, no, I'm yeah. not going to give you a lot of <laughs> flack for that. I mean, I'm actually, I believe that people might do milk first. I'd, lo- I'd love to hear uh, from the listeners if, if you do milk before cereal, let me know because it's surprising to hear that, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to put it past. That could be a, that could be a thing, right? People do it. Do you know other people who do that, Charles? Um, well, to be honest, I've never really, uh, polled anybody on their, you've uh, always thought that that's the way preference. to do it or no, I just thought it didn't, it didn't matter. matter. <laughs> I just thought it was like, yeah, I can go either way. Kind of like, <laughs> I guess toilet paper rolls as well. Am I, am I about to catch some flag for Let's that? Let's not get there. Cause Over I know there's, under. yeah, I know there's a lot of, of, um, controversy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joel is trying to dice up some bananas in there and he, uh, meets up Maggie in the back room area, but they, they kind of start like bickering back and forth. And the thing that just the, the tripwire that sets it off is that I think they're just, I think Joel's referencing a knife of some sorts. Do you guys remember the exact dialogue? It, he's he brandishing says? a knife and he's saying something about it doesn't matter, blah, 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 about putting bananas in the jello afterwards or whatever. And, and I don't know, it's, it's one of those classic moments of Fleischman O'Connell tension that has been building up since episode two or three or whatever, whenever Sophie Sanderson died, these moments of tension between, and usually Maggie and Joel come to this heated argument and then go their separate ways. They storm off, but this time that's not what happens. Yeah. They start going at it. Yeah. They, Just, they embrace. Wait, what did he say? Necking? Yeah. She, I think she says, we definitely necked. We were necking or something like that. I think she says something like that. And, and, uh, no, yeah, they embrace, they, essentially like roll around the entire kitchen, knocking They're knocking pots things and pans over. off. I think that this scene is shot in an impressively, very effective way. I, I love the manner, the sh- choices of shots, the way it starts out. I think it's actually starting on, the, on an insert of the jello, like a close-up shot of the jello, and we sort of pull out into a two-shot between Joel and Maggie as they're bickering. And there's very little 
edits. There's very little cuts in this um, up until, what is it? Maggie asks for the knife. Like that's, that's why she's in the kitchen. She's like, can you give me that knife? And it cuts to Joel. And he sort of, it's almost like shouting. He's got dagger eyes on Maggie. He says, I'm using it. Uh, then we cut back to Maggie's reaction and she's just sort of matching his eyes, his eye lines and sort of exhaling. But you don't know, there's like sort of this brief moment. You don't know what's going to happen. And then we cut out to a two shot in which Joel enters from the left and Maggie enters from the right slowly. So it's sort of like we see them meet in the middle and there's, you know, sort of the best representation that two humans can do of an explosion. They grab each other closely and roll around the kitchen, as we said, knocking over all sorts of stuff. And the camera kind of whips around to follow them and it doesn't cut away from that. It's like following them around the moment when they stop kissing, they sort of pull apart in, in, in a similar way that they came together. And we go from Maggie's reaction. She's kind of cupping her mouth in shock and the camera whips um, pans over to Joel, uh, who's got his he hand on his head, uh, similarly in shocked. But I think this pan is one of the greatest parts of this sort of the cinematography in the scene, because instead of cutting, doing a hard edit, the camera does not cut, it pans. We, we essentially get to live in this moment in real time exactly. And mm -hmm. we don't separate them with an edit. They're still, even when they're pulled apart, the camera joins them together in its hmm. swooping motion. I didn't notice that. That's from, that's some pretty good camera work then. Do you think it's planned then? I, is the blocking planned? Like certainly. they block to that area and then that area when they're kissing? Certainly something, you know, uh, this is, this is something that when I watched it again, I definitely wanted to study it because it's not something you necessarily notice outright, but there was something about the scene that felt super real. Um, part of that is how they didn't cut um, during the, you know, sort of the setup of the scene. It's sort of this long take where they're bickering at each other. Yeah, something about it just feels very in the moment and exhilarating, um, which is, you know, essentially what they're doing is they're capturing these actors in, in motion without... Uh, interjecting cinema and, and edits and showing you what to look at, how to feel. You just get to see this all unroll in one smooth motion. Yeah, it's dynamic. Um, great first kiss between them. Well, you know, first real actual kiss. Yeah, I guess the actors have kissed, I guess, a number of times. In, in the dream sequences and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that there was a commercial break at that moment? I definitely think so, yeah, because... And then they roll back into it and they, like, run out of the kitchen? Yeah, because, the, uh, again, uh, the when way that ends... come back from the commercial. Yeah, the, the, the way that scene ends is Maggie cupping her mouth, Joel, uh, hand on his forehead. They're, they're both shocked. And that's when we cut to commercial, certainly. Because uh, I think it's, like, at least on the DVD, I think uh, there's, like, a fade-in, right, from Black. There's a fade-in yeah, to so. the next scene. So they come out from the kitchen and you kind of realize that the kitchen is open. You know, there's not a wall. You yeah. can see straight into the kitchen where everything was knocked over. <laughs> right. So surely somebody heard the banging and saw Joel and Maggie kissing in the kitchen. I don't know. But the music, the dance music was kind of loud. I don't, I'm just trying to maybe give Maybe people were distracted excuses. by Chris. Yeah. Chris is very <laughs> obnoxiously <laughs> dancing, which is, a again, a hilarious cutaway in this next scene. In front of the lasagna. <laughs> the lasagna table. Right. So they come out and they're they're trying to justify their behavior to each other. Whose fault was it? They each take blame for it, and then they discuss as adults. They say <laughs> what they're going to do. 
to, to, to settle this, to go their separate ways. And they said it was simple. Yeah, yeah. Joel needs a woman. Maggie needs a man. Yeah. Well, Maggie has Rick, and that's when Rick is mentioned. Yeah. In this episode, poor, poor Maggie Rick says she's getting, got Rick. He cheated right. on. That's all he gets. He just gets a, a quick reference. And yeah, what? How does? <laughs> I don't know if we ever get resolution on this, but how does Maggie explain that to Rick? Does it ever come? We'll find out. Well, here's uh, just on the subject of Rick, real fast. Um, earlier in season one, there's a scene in. I want to say Kodiak moment where Maggie effectively breaks up with Rick. Like it, she doesn't say that. That's but it, the one where he has the growth, the growth or whatever. Right. And he thinks he's yeah. dying and it's Maggie's fault. And then after that scene, which I, I like, I like that episode because uh, we do get a lot of Rick, which is something we don't see a whole lot of. Mm-hmm. But um, no, after that episode, I think he uh, starts to appear less and less in the show. Uh, which to me, I think, yeah, maybe we're like, maybe we're hanging on to this Rick, um, this actor for a little too long. But yeah, for me, if I were writing the show, just write him out after that episode. You know, Maggie could effectively just break up with him and you don't have to worry about him coming back. For something. Yeah. Yeah. So so he's he's still around. And um, what do you think, Charles? What do you think? How do you think Rick's going to come back? Um, hmm. I think that from a writing standpoint, he's only going to introduce be introduced back as a point of division like an between Maggie and Joel. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, an obstacle to be climbed over. That's the only time in which he will come back and his presence need to, to be there physically. Uh, really, that's all he is at this moment. Um, that's all his character is, which is, I guess, okay. Like, if you need to show something to stop Ma- uh, Maggie and Joel being together, there needs to be some sort of uh, reason beyond just deep-seated uh will they won't they so yeah, i'm really interested to that's see really all i got for it. i remember a lot about the next episode um war and peace is the name of it but i actually don't remember what's to come from this uh sort of overarching storyline of, of joel and maggie throughout the second season so i'll be really interested to see what happens next episode do we want to talk about the climax in more ways than one of yeah. Maggie and Joel. Yeah. yeah. Essentially. That's the next big scene. Yeah. Leaving this scene, as you said, Jay, they, they sort of hastily agree to never kiss again. Like we can't do this anymore. Uh, Maggie has Rick. Joel's just got to find a woman, which I think is, is maybe partly why uh, the, the Betty scene happens after this. Yeah, I think so. But um, okay. So we're moving on and, and um, Joel towards the end of the episode sort of barges into uh, Maggie's house. Yeah. In fact, she's, she says barge right on in. Like he, he is, he's barging into her house. What happens here? He drinks her wine or yeah, whatever drink she chugs. has. He oh, just, yeah. like, I, I have, have this, this and just chugs it. it. <laughs> I think he just starts having like a little bit of a breakdown along with her and they kind of just keep bickering back and forth and it keeps going like rising and rising until they, uh, I guess figuratively, um, climax. Yeah. Yeah, I have sex because it's implying that because, you know, they, they both uh, finish and then at the end of it, they go down. I don't know how to say yeah, that yeah, yeah. while keeping it G-rated. No, it's, it's I good. really don't. <laughs> I think we, we nailed it. I think it would be even worse if I tried to hide it with innuendo. Like that would make it even... Like, I, I think for no, some I reason think, saying it outright is the most cleanest it's, way. This is 2019. I think this is still, you know, PG. I'm surprised it's aired on CBS, by the way. That that's yeah. Was this prime time? I mean, 
I mean, it was at like what eight thirty? I thought. Yeah, that's uh, Eastern time People, that it aired. Kids go I to could sleep. Be wrong, yeah. but I thought it was that. Yeah. But yeah, they finish and then they're on the couch and then they start smoking a cigarette. Yeah, they fall um, back onto the couch, exasperated. They both put their feet up the same way. As if Maggie makes a remark that Joel never smokes, <laughs> and he says he's been known to have a, a cigarette or two, especially but, after a good conversation. Conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I. From my standpoint, it seems like it's kind of resolved itself. The Maggie Joel plotline, at least for a little bit, mm-hmm. because they've gotten they've, this off their chest, maybe. But I think this is a big moment of growth between the two characters, mm-hmm. and a big moment of growth for Joel. Joel, the whole episode is talking about how self-conscious he is, and now he's finally admitting the the fantasies, the dreams he's had about Maggie. And but she does the same thing to him. She's admitting the fantasies that she's right. had about him, mm-hmm. and they're, mm-hmm. it's driving each other crazy. Something to note, and I don't know if we cover this, this scene happens after the ice breaks. Mm-hmm. When the ice breaks, everything kind of goes back to normal. Holling no longer mm-hmm. wants to fight Szymanski. That's when he gets punched out. Maurice now goes back to asking all, acting all masculine and whatnot. Uh, Shelly presumably puts down the book and goes back to filling up ketchup bottles. <laughs> everything goes back to normal, except for Joel and Maggie. Yeah, he, he even comments something like, I, I thought these dreams would go away, um, you know, after the ice melted, but it, it's still affecting them. Uh, so I, I don't think this is definitely, you know, obviously this isn't this. Obviously, this isn't the um, end of of the Joel Maggie sort of romance. We'll have to see where that. It puts a pin in it for this episode, though. Yeah, they, they can get closure here at least. Yeah, I guess breaking the ice is also melting it in the ice, and you know, the ice melts over and floods the dams. Mm. So I guess that's where that metaphor carries into. Okay. There you go. Hmm. Yeah, there we go. Tie it all together. <laughs> um, guys, want to talk about running of the bulls and close this out? Running the bulls. Yeah. A, a race that Joel thinks is just a regular race. He says he ran the New York Marathon and didn't pass out until what street? I don't know. I'm not familiar with their route in the New York Marathon anyway. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I note that I remember that quote exactly too. But I mean, well, not exactly because I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I remember. I remember when he said says that, but. Sorry, I'm coming up short. I forgot. I wonder if he's actually, um, I bet if we, <laughs> sorry, I bet if we knew the street, we could determine if Joel is actually How far a, good, he made it. a good marathon runner or not. Did he make it three miles? Yeah. Did he make it 12 miles? <laughs> 12. How yeah. far did he really make it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are, they're at the brick, right? Yes. Is they're at the brick. Up? Charles, do you yeah. not recognize the brick? <laughs> oh, Every just, interior shot's at the brick, yeah. Maurice's house, yeah. some cabin, and that's it. They are they yeah, are using really, different different angles. I think we mentioned that in uh, another episode in, in, in this season, how it's like, I don't know if I've ever seen the brick photographed in this way. So, so sure, yeah, they, they are using uh, <laughs> that's true. new angles sometimes. Yeah, so, the, he, you know, he's getting ready, and then um, I, I can't remember, but are they steadily disrobing yes. while he's talking with them, or did it just disrobe at one moment? They're drinking at first, and uh, so that's kind of the first clue. I kind of was watching it closely, sort of on this rewatch to kind of, to kind of figure that out. But I, I think they're, yeah, people are like taking off their coats, which is the same thing that Joel's doing. Yeah, which is understandable. But you can see that uh, Holling is lining up shots on the bar. Um, everyone's getting drunk. And uh, yes, they are. They end up slowly disrobing, and Joel catches on to this. It's like, what's going on? Yeah, and then... I think it's Chris. Yeah, it's definitely Chris who starts explaining the uh, the traditions. Oh, and that was Holling. Of the running of the bulls. Or Holling. Wait, is it Holling? I think they kind of all piggyback. Maurice says one thing. They kind of do, yeah. Yeah. But Holling does. What are you doing? Disrobing, son. Yeah. Holling says, You see, Joel, 
In this particular race, the men of Sicily run in the buff. No. Sicilian tradition, Joel. Well, you're gonna, you're gonna run out that door, down Main Street, out to Highway 1 in front of God and everybody, in, in near freezing temperatures with absolutely nothing on? That's right. No. Warms up once you get going, right, fellas? Let's go! I like in the buff as a phrase, like as opposed to like saying nude or naked. It's just, I think it's yeah. a phrase that doesn't get used anymore today. In the buff. That's true. It's funny. Maybe that kind of fits in with Holling's character being a, a 62-year-old man at the time. Yeah, I think it definitely is mm. a good you know, bit of dialogue that I could hear that character saying, you know, in real life or something. Yeah. I'm a fan of a uh, buck naked. Buck naked. Like, We're going to have to beat that, that one anymore. Is what? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, fallen yeah, out of popularity, uh, I guess. I like, I like how Chris kind of like whips his, uh, he does the helicopter. I'm not too sure. Like shirt. Yeah. It does like the helicopter slingshot motion. He does that with two articles of his clothing. Pants. Like he just throws it though. Like he doesn't like put it down neatly in the area and be like, okay, I can, I can come back and go get my clothes. He just, yeah. Like he just throws it into the brick. How's he going to find he it? He has that primal energy, man. Uh, yeah. But uh, no. So the way it ends is uh, we get the Lindsay Buckingham song once again. And the, all of the sound drops out as this music takes over. You know, the way it's photographed, everyone's running naked, but all of the private parts are obscured by snow or otherwise framed out from the final image. So you just kind of see from the waist up, but yeah, a long line of men run out of the, out of the brick and in front of, they're the, really running through Roslyn. Yeah. In front of the Roslyn cafe sign. They had to do that. <laughs> the women are cheering. Yeah. Who knows how, how cold it actually was. Probably pretty cold. I mean, snow was still there. <laughs> do you, um, so you're saying they, they actually were running nude. Uh, have you heard the... I don't know if they were actually running nude, but I mean, it looks like it. Well, so... You're okay. talking about whether they were actually wearing bottoms or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, according to... I was listening to the... Um, there was a reunion, I think, back in 2017 where a lot of the actors and the some of the producers and the writers and Joshua Brand was uh, at this Austin, Texas festival where they were just talking about Northern Exposure and... Uh, one of the things that Rob Morrow says pertains to this scene. He says something like when they were shooting this season, they were trying to get away with a lot of, uh, of different things. Like the show is sort of remembered as breaking the ice for a lot of uh, TV today, kind of going to uncharted territory and, and trying out weird things. And so <laughs> Rob Morrow is saying how, how he wanted to do something really artistic in this episode. He was like really full of himself and he approached uh, the producers of the director. And he's like, no, we got to do something. We got to do something real. Let's, you know, let's actually do it. If we're going to take all of our clothes off, let's actually get naked and run in the streets. And this is according to what Rob Murrow said in this interview. Apparently um, they did do a take like the last take of um, this scene, albeit I don't think they were allowed to use it, but they did a take <laughs> where they were all naked. And in fact, Rob Morrow says um, that he paid off a lot of the extras to do it. <laughs> like he gave them money <laughs> to take their clothes off and run through. I don't know if that's, uh, you know, I don't know if this is like, does that count as prostitution or what? Well, public nudity <laughs> is public, what that is. Uh, yeah, probably just public nudity. I don't nudity. know if they, I mean, maybe there are, 
as few cops in Roslyn, Washington as there are in Sicily, Alaska, and they can get away with it. Well, as, maybe, they, maybe they worked with the police department. As Rob Morrow says, um, as they were wrapping up that scene, the mayor comes comes in, and apparently the town of the Sicily, actual mayor. the actual mayor of, uh, not Sicily, the actual mayor of Roslyn comes in, and apparently the government, uh, you know, the, gov- the mayor or whatever, they were not fans of the show because they're kind of coming into the small town and doing crazy stuff. So, um, apparently, the, uh, Rob was saying he almost got arrested and the producers had to kind of talk him out of it. Oh my but, God. Uh, oh my God. But no, yes. Yeah, long story short. Um, so they did do a take in the nude. It sounds like. Yeah. R- Rob Morrow alludes to, uh, in this interview that he did alludes to having a lot of the outtakes and a lot of the, uh, deleted scenes, you know, the film, the film reels, um, you know, in his own personal possession, like in his stash. So perhaps he has the, uh, the unused footage here. Maybe that's another reason why we don't have deleted scenes for this season. Cause they couldn't get away. Cause oh, Rob yeah. Morrow has it all. Yeah. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Let's start a petition. Get Rob Morrow to release. The, no, we don't need to do that. Release the tapes. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, Charles, um, how does this episode rank for you? I like it. I like it more than the recent episodes. I got to say, I don't, I don't know if it's my favorite episode so far. Um, definitely not. I definitely would not say it's one of my favorite episodes, but I like the plot lines and I like how Jay was referencing earlier, how they converge into one. Well, most of them, they all kind of like neatly tie into each other. I think I'm just a fan of the writer because I really liked Russian flu as well. Yeah. So. I was going to say uh, Russian flu similarly has moving parts and different plot lines, but they all kind of tie into the central problem of the flu. Similarly, this all ties together in this, in the, in the meltdown. Yeah. I mean, if anything, at least this episode shows growth. Also what Jay had said between Maggie and Joel, which I'm always pro of that. Like, um, like wanting their relationship to be advanced uh, moving forward. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, what about y'all? Where does, uh, where does this episode rank for y'all? I mean, I've said this before. This, this definitely stands out for me. This episode particularly because of the scene in the brick between Joel and Maggie, the, you know, the, when they kiss and roll around. But um, that just, that felt like a really expert way of, of sort of coming to that boiling point in, in their storyline. Uh, Jay, what do you think? I think it's I think it's one of my favorite episodes of the season so far. They're still being innovative with the show and trying new things throughout this whole season. And, but this so far has been the most out there I think so many and that's why I enjoyed it the most yeah yeah yeah. I think probably 30 I don't know a third of the episode was spent on just dream sequences yeah (laughs) yeah Um, no it is a very special episode I was telling you guys I am lucky enough to own a VHS copy um, which would predate the DVDs of this episode apparently they released five episodes of Northern Exposure on tape um, before coming out with the full series on DVD I I did watch the episode on tape and then I watched it on DVD. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't watching them close enough to kind of to kind of tell which music was used if there were. Oh yeah, you said there was something music. about the difference in the music. Yeah, so on season two DVDs and onward, um, some of the original broadcast music is replaced. I guess because they were. Uh, not willing to pay the rights, maybe for, for this for this uh, DVD released for the for the music rights. We're we're gonna have this. We're gonna have to do some research, I guess, for our season two retrospective. But uh, I remember you. Um, there was this interview that you said that uh, 
Brandon Falsey did, and they said in the interview that after the season eight, I mean the season one, episode eight, the finale, Aurora Borealis, they felt like they could just do anything with the show. Yeah, that's actually from the same uh, Austin, Texas interview, uh, which oh, I, is actually, it? Okay. I actually wish I had listened to that before recording that episode, but uh, I'm glad to have listened to it before before this episode because we get that little fact about the running of the bulls. That's a little, another little takeaway about Aurora Borealis. Apparently that was episode four originally. And the uh, really? studio did not want, did not like it. Like they thought it was too out there. So they had, they pushed it to episode eight, but whenever the ratings came back, um, yeah, they could do whatever. They couldn't deny it. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I want to leave you guys with a couple of closing questions for you to consider and think about. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. In the credits of the show, they're still using the same still. Yes. From the first episode of Joel basically giving up. Yeah, deciding, deciding to stay. Deciding to, to stay. Right. They're still using that same still. What do you guys think about using the same still? Should they should they change to a different one for the second season? Uh, I don't remember if they carry that on throughout the whole series or not. I, I want to say they carry it on throughout the whole series. Could be wrong. Guess we'll get there. But um, let's see. I think that... I think that there's two two sides to this. Um, yeah, I th- I think that it's a bit dated, and it's a very strange still to pick. Right. If you're if that's if you're just watching this episode randomly on TV, and you get to the end of it, and you're <laughs> like, wow, this is a really weird episode. I don't follow what's going on, but I kind of like it. And then you see that's just that still image. And you're like, wait, did that happen? It's in this out episode? of the blue. That that wasn't in this episode. Where did that come from? You know. But the other side is the persistence of using that image places some sort of significance or importance, which is, uh, you know, I think it came to me much later than the first time when we were watching it. But yeah, to me, that that image holds a lot of significance, um, being the moment that he chose to go back and stay in Sicily. It's such an awkward, because they're kind of frozen in movement. But yeah, I, I, I would like to to know why. I'd like to pick it's their brains. It's a defining moment of the show, but it's a strange... yeah. Strange still to have. I, I like it. Yeah. I think I like it overall. It, it is a weird choice, but uh, I like it for at least the significance that I'm placing on it. I could be way off, but I'd love to know more. Charles, what do you think? Yeah, I definitely would love... That, that would be at least top three questions if I ever met someone that was associated with the show <laughs> in a editorial capacity. I want to ask him, like, why did you even select that in the first place? Did someone like... You know, like lose a bet or something, or it was like somebody was just like, "Hey, man, I bet we could just put this any random shot in the pilot. Choose whichever one. Uh, let's do timestamp this. All right, that's it. That's the that's the ending shot we're gonna use." Um, yeah, I agree with your theory as well, Lee. I think that that's probably the best reason I can see why they would decide to choose that one. Maybe it's one of those it's so out there that it actually fits type of thing. Mm -hmm. Like it's such a strange shot that it actually makes sense that that would be the one to end on. But um, I think that's my answer for now. Okay. My second question for you guys, what do you think about Maggie and Joel always referring to each other by their last names? (laughs) Well, I I, I did, uh, I guess the thought finally came to me, but um, Ed always calls Joel Dr. Fleischman, you know? Yeah. That's the title. Um, He's giving some respect to Fleischman. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Why would O'Connell and, and uh, Fleischman? Because I don't think anybody else calls Maggie O'Connell. O'Connell. No, they other, don't. You're, other you're than probably Joel. right. But you're right that some other people, like every now and then Maurice will say Fleischman or Ed will say Dr. Fleischman. Um, but most everybody else calls him Joel. 
it's really mainly Maggie and Joel never really refer to each other by their first names. Is it like their way of flirting and and sort of arguing? (laughs) That's my best. What do you think, Charles? Oh, that's a really good point. Um, I guess that is like kind of like a uh, flirting tactic of just referring to them by their last name. I remember that that did strike me as odd when I was first listening or like first watching the series as well. I, I guess that it's just another way to differentiate the relationship that those two have compared to the relationships that they have throughout all the other townsfolk because they don't use the last names as well. That's a good point. So, yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that would be my answer as well. That's a really good question. Those are my closing thoughts. Okay. Yeah, I like, those are, those are good food for thought sort of questions. I like that you did that. Yeah. I don't think any of our other guests have ever done that. We'll have to ask for more Well, I, I mean, in this capacity, ask. I kind of get to uh, give you guys some feedback and, and yeah. get you, ask some questions for you. Not only has Jay watched this series a lot, he's you've listened to all the episodes, right? All the I podcast have, episodes. I have been listening to all the podcast episodes that Lee and Charles have released. Um, they've been doing a great job so far. Thanks. I think maybe uh, you could ask your guests in the future. I know you probably don't want to spoil their vision of the show, but maybe you could ask them what they think about that still at the end. Yeah. How random it mm. might seem since they're only watching totally, a single episode. I think the only for person... For them, it's removed. Yeah, the only person who's commented on that is Katie in, in episode seven. She kind of laughed because it's such a... You know, she was completely confused by it. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Hell yeah, I Or surprised that. by it, but uh, that's a good <laughs> point. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to uh, add that to the roster of questions. Well, guys, thank you for joining me for this episode. Season two, episode five, spring break. One of my favorite episodes had to have Jay on. Charles, once again, thank you for <laughs> co-hosting with me, sticking yeah. it through. Thanks for, uh, thanks for guest starring in this episode, Jay. Oh, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. I had a good time talking to you guys. Yeah, we definitely got to get you back very soon on the show. Let's see. Next week is season two, episode six, War and Peace. Getting some Tolstoy in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll get some Russian Tolstoy. So, so. We'll see. We'll see. Well, the, the, the townsfolk would know all about that. They're, they're close to... They're fluent. They're close to... They're fluent in oh, Russian history. Yeah. Not only are they close, <laughs> but you're right. Yeah, they seem to know everything about Glasnost, Perestroika, uh, you know, the Russian <laughs> flu. As they Go back to that episode if you'd like to know more. Okay. Let's get out of here, Charles. Okay. All right. I'll talk to you guys later. Northern Overexposure podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Jay for being our guest host on the podcast today. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.